the 2010 website, uh, the Chicago Bears football team presented a series of videos that follow the team's rookies from their first arrival at training camp and on through preseason. One video showed part of the head coach's first orientation talk with the rookie class. Of course, the biggest thing on each rookie's mind is whether they're going to make the team. Rookies know that the team roster starts out with about 80 players who come to camp. And after a few weeks, the coaches cut down the team to 65 players. Then before the season actually begins, all NFL teams are required to trim down to 53 players. So of the 19 rookies who were invited to training camp, the team would likely only keep around seven. Well, of course, the coach knew that too. So he addressed the rookies' concern in his talk. He challenged them and said to them, make us put you on the team. In other words, he was telling them, play so well that the coaches couldn't imagine cutting you. Make us put you on the team. Take the decision out of the coaches' hands. Let your performance make the decision for us. You know what? Most religions in our world work that way. Most religions, most people think that, that God makes the same sort of speech about who he's going to let into heaven. That God uses the same sort of evaluation on who makes his team. They presume God says, do you want to be on my team? Do you want to make the team? Do you want to go to heaven and have eternal life? Then make me put you on the team. Live such a good life. Do so many good deeds that I couldn't imagine not having you on my team. Take the decision out of my hands. So do your best to earn your own entrance. By your own effort, by your own merit, earn your spot on my team. However, the truth is that God works in a completely different basis than football coaches. Being on God's team, being part of God's family is not something you can earn. How sad that so many millions upon millions of people think that if they perform so well, they can make God add them to his heavenly roster because they're so deserving of it. After all, I'm a good person. After all, I, I do more good than bad. After all, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Folks, most of the people you interact with in your daily life basically think that that's how God works. It's salvation by works. Salvation by my own effort. Salvation is on the earn-it-yourself plan. But that's not how God works. His plan of salvation is the opposite of works. It's salvation by grace through faith. God saves us by his grace and his grace alone through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So much of the world is focused on earning their acceptance with God. They think that God is solely focused on their outward actions, on their performance. Instead of needing the redemption of God, so many believe that they can, by their own efforts, purchase or buy or earn their way into heaven by their own good works. So much of our world sees God as a coach, picking the best players 
for his team. But our God is not so fickle. Our God's not so unpredictable and capricious and unreliable. He's not making us jump through hoop after hoop after hoop and then changing the rules of the game when we're halfway through and then picking and choosing some and excluding others with a standard we don't understand because how good is good enough? How bad can you be? What's the proper score for a good deed and what's the proper penalty for a bad deed? Does one bad deed wipe out 10 good deeds? Or does one good deed wipe out 10 bad deeds? Nobody knows. And yet the majority of the people think that God works that way. What does God say? You can't earn it. Not one good deed merits any favor with God. Not one. And one bad deed, only one, is enough for us to stand eternally condemned. And guess what? If you're anything like me, you're in the upwards of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of selfish, sinful deeds. In reality, God tells us our score. We have earned zero. He tells us our grade. You get an F. He tells us the scales. No good deeds on one side and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sinful deeds on the other side. He tells us and illustrates over and over again in the Bible, you can't do it. It's impossible to merit your entrance into God's team, onto his family. It's impossible. One of the main words used to describe salvation is the word redemption. The word redemption or redeem comes from a combination of two Greek words meaning out of and to buy. Redemption to redeem is to purchase back, to purchase back something that's been lost by the payment of a ransom. The very word redeem or redemption speaks against the error of works salvation. Our salvation is not about our performance, but about his forgiveness, about his love and his grace. No price we can pay can earn our salvation because we're sinners, alienated from God. The distance is too great. The cost is too high. But God loves us. He wants to have a relationship with us. So he provided a way. Since it's impossible to obtain eternal life through our own efforts, somebody else had to do it for us. We needed to be redeemed. Instead of earning it by our own efforts, we're bought with a price. The price, the path of salvation, only comes through the sacrificial death, powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of Ruth chapter 4 is about this word, redemption. About a kinsman redeemer, redeeming the unredeemable, buying back the unwanted, purchasing with his own actions that which the other person could never do. As we come now to this last message in the book of Ruth, the story culminates with the redemption of Ruth, By Boaz. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, literally buys back Ruth and Naomi. 
So today as we look at the picture of redemption of Ruth, we're talking about our redemption through Jesus Christ. That our Jesus literally buys us back from the marketplace of sin and slavery and hell and brings us into his family. Today we're going to see three facets of redemption. First is the hope of redemption. As we come to our story this morning, the scene on the threshing floor is completed. Ruth has gone to tell Naomi all about it, and Boaz has gone to settle the matter with the nearer kinsman redeemer. To do that, he has to deal wisely with this nearer kinsman redeemer. So Boaz goes to the city gate. Now, the city gate is a very busy place. It serves as a kind of outdoor court, the place where judicial matters were resolved by the city elders in full public view. The city gate was also the main location for the transaction of business, for the buying and selling of goods. It's a public forum and meeting place. Boaz goes to the city gate to wait for the nearer kinsman redeemer to come by. And it just so happens that he happened to come by. Because they're sitting at the city gate, it is then easy for Boaz to call over 10 elders to serve as witnesses to this legal procedure that Boaz is working on. This is not a small thing. This took skill and patience to work this out. We find out as the discussion begins that Naomi's trying to sell the land that belonged to her husband, Elimelech. The ownership of land in Israel is a sacred thing. Both the land and the owner of the land stay connected throughout all generations. Normally, a wife would have no right to the land, but perhaps because she had no children to inherit the land, she was allowed to sell it to kinsmen of Elimelech to help provide for her ongoing financial needs. Now, not only is the line of Elimelech coming to a a conclusion with no error, but his land now is being sold. That's like saying that his memory is being lost. In God's law in Leviticus 25, 25, it says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So Boaz, in the presence of the ten elders, acknowledges that the nearer kinsman redeemer has the first right to the land because land is so valuable. Of course he would want to buy the land. What a great addition to his family's wealth and future. Boaz asks the nearer kinsman redeemer if he's willing to act like a kinsman redeemer. With the purchase of the land on his mind, the nearer kinsman redeemer says, yes. He knows that buying the land is going to be to his advantage. He doesn't just say yes in the Hebrew. It's an emphatic yes. I, I will redeem. Now we've come through this whole story. Ruth and Naomi, we come to this this culmination point. The music is swelling. It's this grand, amazing redemption of Ruth by Boaz. And now this unnamed near kinsman redeemer comes along and he wants the land. Even boldly states that I will redeem. So this most dramatic and unexpected twist happens. Is all lost? What's going to happen now? Could it 
be that the love and the hope and the relationship is lost? Is Ruth really riding off on the sunset with this unnamed kinsman redeemer? Is the hope of the redemption of Ruth by Boaz lost? See, the whole story now is twisting and turning in anticipation of what is going to happen next. The reality is, however, that the nearer kinsman redeemer has forgotten a few things. He's forgotten a few important stipulations and quid pro quos of being a kinsman redeemer. Perhaps he was hoping to just slide on by and get what he wanted, but not fulfilling his full responsibility. Remember, with the background of our story in the time of the judges, when there was such a national and individual apostasy, it was not uncommon for God's law to be only partially filed, if it was even filed at all. Boaz here is pictured as a godly man, following God's word, a compassionate man, and a smart man, shrewd and honest. Boaz, in this public setting, with the ten elders present, Who knows how many other townspeople are watching what's going on. He skillfully and kindly reminds the nearer kinsman redeemer of his full kinsman redeemer responsibilities. You just don't get the land. You have the responsibility of Naomi. Oh, and Ruth as well. When you purchase the land, you purchase the responsibility over them as well. In God's law, in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband as a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his dead brother. And his name shall not be blotted out from Israel. Now, if there's no Ruth, there'd be no issue. Because it was practically impossible for Naomi to have any children in the line of Elimelech. So if you purchase the land, it would become yours because the line of Elimelech has come to an end. However, the presence of Ruth changes everything. When you purchase the land, you not only get the older widow, Naomi... You get the younger widow, Ruth. Through the Leverite laws, it would be the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to marry Ruth, to have children with Ruth, so that the line of Elimelech does not come to an end, but it would endure. Then this land that you have just purchased would go to that child and would stay in the ownership of the line of Elimelech. You would have purchased the land, But the inheritance in the land would not be for yours and your family, but resort back to the line of Elimelech. The reality of the true cost of the risk of such a responsibility hits the man. And now in Hebrew, he emphatically says to Boaz that if you want it, you can have it. You're the kinsman redeemer. You, you redeem In the presence of the ten elders, the nearer kinsman redeemer forfeits his rights of redemption to Boaz. To make sure the readers understand what's going on by the removing of the nearer kinsman's redeemer sandal, the author inserts some information to to clarify for us in verse 7. 
because this custom wasn't followed anymore, it needed some explanation. The removal and offer of a sandal in the presence of the ten elders made the transaction legal and binding. Boaz has skillfully set up the whole issue to be about Ruth. See, the near kinsman redeemer wanted the land, but wants nothing to do with Ruth, the Moabite. The land he wants, but not Ruth. He rejects the outcast. He rejects the foreign, penniless widow. But not our hero, Boaz. Boaz has so wonderfully orchestrated this whole meeting so that it is clear and evident to everyone that he is eager, ready, willing, and able to take on all the responsibilities of a kinsman redeemer. He wants Ruth. He chooses Ruth. He will redeem not just the land, not just Naomi, but Ruth. He has the right to redeem. He has the resources to redeem. He has the resolve to redeem. What an amazing godly man. Listen again to Boaz, his reply starting in uh, chapter 4, verse 9. Then Boaz says to the elders, And to all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought the land from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion and Malion. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malion, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. He redeemed the land. He redeemed Naomi. And he redeemed Ruth, the Moabite, foreign, penniless widow. And he boldly proclaims for all to hear that this outcast, this foreign widow, is my wife. For a moment, it looked like all hope of redemption was lost. But in the end, God's plan of redemption was realized. Folks, there is hope for our redemption. We're hopeless in our own effort. We can't earn God's favor. We can't merit God's love. We come as an outcast. We come as a penniless, broken sinner. We have nothing to offer for our redemption. Is there any hope for us? Is there a redeemer for us? Is there someone who will purchase us and bring us into their family? Is there someone who's going to love us? Is there someone who wants us? Is there someone who will choose us? Yes. Yes, there is. The next facet of redemption that we see in our passage today is the plan of redemption. Now, the plan of redemption has come to full. Boaz announces not only to the elders, but to all the people his intention of being the kinsman redeemer. This might have been a legal procedure on the outside, but on the inside for Boaz, it's so much more. He's rejoicing. 
He proclaims his intentions to all the people. He shouts it from the highest platform. He tells everyone he sees along the way. In Luke, it says there is rejoicing in heaven when the sinner repents. God and all of heaven rejoices when the plan of redemption is realized in a sinner's life. Because redemption brings rejoicing. Redemption brings rejoicing. Oh, how wonderful a thought that redemption brings rejoicing. Just like the father running to hug his prodigal son, throwing a great big party. So is the redemption of a sinner to the father. It's this type of rejoicing that Boaz is experiencing and expressing. It's this type of rejoicing that Naomi and Ruth are experiencing. The property is redeemed. Naomi is redeemed. Ruth is redeemed. And when God brings an heir, the whole line of Elimelech will be redeemed. There is much to rejoice about. A redeemer has stepped up and lives are being saved. The elders' response to Boaz's statement of redemption with a word of blessing. They asked the Lord to bless Ruth with many children, like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah are from whom the whole 12 tribes of Israel come from. They also asked the Lord to bless Boaz with standing and strength, that his name would be known for what he has done, that they would ask the Lord to bless Boaz with many children as well, knowing that his first child will also be counted as a son of Malion. So the line of Elimelech could continue. The story of Ruth illustrates for us who our God is. Our God, the greatest redeemer. If a mere human could love an outcast, if a mere human could redeem her and give her a future and a hope, bring her into his family and a fellowship with him, then God can love the outcast. Then God can redeem the outcast, then God can give a future and a hope by bringing them into his family, into relationship with him. You see, if Ruth can be redeemed, so we can be redeemed. God loves you. He can redeem you. He can give you a future and a hope and bring you into relationship with him. The hope of redemption becomes the plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. He's the only one with the right to redeem. He's the only one with the resources to redeem. He's the only one with the resolve to redeem. We are never out of reach of the outstretched arms of our loving Jesus Christ. In Romans 3, it says, That righteousness from God, that a right standing with God, a right relationship with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. We're all the same. Every human being stands on the same ground before God. For we are all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified freely by his grace, through redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Jesus purchased us back from sin and slavery. Here's God's plan of redemption. God's plan is to buy us out of the marketplace of sin and slavery and into his family. It can't be earned. 
It comes only through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It can't be earned because, as the scripture says, we're sinners. And no matter what we do, no matter how much we give, no what grade of sacrifice, we fall short of the glory of God. The only way of redemption, the only way of salvation is through the loving grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the price. Jesus ransomed our eternal lives through his substitutionary death and victorious resurrection. In him and in him alone, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Is your hope of redemption in you? In your works? In some scale of good versus bad? Is your hope of redemption and trying to be a good person? Or is your hope your trust in Jesus alone. Our only hope of redemption comes by faith in Jesus. What we could never do, he did. If you don't know Jesus as your redeemer today, call upon him even at this very moment for no one is ever out of the reach of the loving arms of Jesus. The last facet of redemption And our passage today is the fruit of redemption. One of the coolest things, one of the greatest things about God is that salvation has its privileges, its benefits. God's amazing grace doesn't just save us. It's the most critically important aspect of God's grace and love, but it's not the only one. See, God is rich in mercy and blessings. Along with the gift of eternal life comes a new life comes abundant life, comes temporal blessings. Now, we know that when you become a child of God, that doesn't mean all your troubles go away. All your troubles aren't eliminated. It's not pie in the sky and happy by and by and little bunnies and rainbows and full bank accounts and perfect health and everything is just great. No, Christians experience significant life challenges. Significant difficulties, just like any other person on earth. But, you see, in the midst of those difficulties, it's different. In the midst of the life difficulties, we're not left in despair. We're not left hopeless. We're not left without meeting. We're not left alone without a counselor, without a friend. No, we're given strength and hope and encouragement. In the midst, we're given meaning. We're given biblical insight to better handle the struggles and challenges to to understand life. In the midst of the harshness of life, we are blessed because we're a child of God. See, in the conclusion of our story today, we see God's blessing poured out on Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. Chapter 4, verse 13, Boaz takes Ruth to be his wife. And then it specifically says that the Lord, the Lord gave her conception and she gives birth to a son. The child is now officially also a son of Malion. He is considered Naomi's grandson. The line of Elimelech has been restored. If you look closely at verse 14, it says that this child has now acted as a kinsman redeemer too. This child is called a kinsman redeemer to Naomi because he's completely restored her by restoring the family line. 
In verse 16, we see the delight of a grandmother with her grandson. Naomi took her on, him onto her lap and cared for him. She loved him and treated him as her own son. Naomi, who came back to Bethlehem from Moab, empty and bitter, feeling afflicted and abandoned by God, is now holding on her lap the fruit of redemption. Because our God is a great redeemer. Our God's a great giver, giver of blessings. Our God specializes in restoring broken people. Now that would be a fitting end for the story. I mean, if this were a movie, you can kind of picture Naomi holding the baby. Soft music starts to play. The, the screen slowly gets bigger as it slowly fades out. And the credits start scrolling on the screen. What a fitting end for the story. But the story's not over. No, wait one minute. You think the story's over and the music changes. Instead, there's something more happening. The great story of God's love and redemption, of God's sovereignty and acceptance, has one great, very important, wonderfully delicious detail yet to give us. See, that son born to these God-serving couple he was named Obed. And Obed had a son who was named Jesse. And Jesse has a son. And he named him David. Well, it's not just any David, right? Not just any old David. This is King David, one of the greatest Hebrew heroes of all time. The great King David had a Moabite, an outcast, a penniless foreigner as his great-grandmother. Ruth, the penniless widow, is the great-grandmother of King David. If Ruth doesn't go back to Bethlehem with Naomi, pledging to follow the God of Israel, if Ruth doesn't happen to happen upon Boaz's field, if Boaz doesn't step up and, and take on the role of a kinsman redeemer, if none of these things happen and Boaz doesn't marry Ruth, there's no son. There's no King David. How the sovereignty of God works out. Think about all the multiple billions upon billions of inconsequential things that God is working out every day according to his plan, all for his glory and his will. All through the book of Ruth, we see the sovereignty of God. The book of Ruth ends there. But the spiritual and eternal impact of this godly couple of Ruth and Boaz does not. In the genealogy of our Savior Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it says, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And that forgotten field outside of Bethlehem, where Ruth, that foreign outcast widow, went to glean, and Boaz took notice and stepped up as the kinsman redeemer, it was not just there where the future great-grandparents of King David met. No, it's there where the very lineage 
of Jesus, our Savior, came together. You see, a baby was born in Bethlehem named Obed, a redeemer of the line of Elimelech. And a baby was born in Bethlehem named Jesus, the redeemer of the world, the redeemer of all who call upon him by grace through faith, the very lineage of the king of kings. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, comes down to these amazing moments of God's sovereign hand, the almighty work of God through this simple couple. What an amazing God we serve. Our God is so powerful. Our God is so mighty. Our God is greatly to be praised. The book of Ruth teaches us the full cycle of God's care and work in our lives. As one commentator put it, God brings his people from death to life. God brings his people from curse to blessing. God brings his people from bitterness to happiness. God brings his people from emptiness to fullness. God brings his people from despair to hope. God brings his people, us, from lost to redeemed. We have learned that God is sovereign. We can trust him, not just with our eternal destiny, but with the everyday details of our lives. He's working all things for his glory, all things for our good, for his plan, for our purpose, for his success, for our service. God is sovereign in the good and in the bad. God is sovereign in the best and in the worst of days. God is sovereign in the times of plenty And in the times of want, God is sovereign in the times of rejoicing and in the times of sorrow. Psalm 62 challenges us. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock and my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him, because God is a refuge for us. O beloved, perhaps today is your day. Perhaps today is your day to trust him at all times. All times. Even right now, in the difficulties you're facing. Our God is sovereign And our God uses ordinary people. Ruth and Boaz are your everyday people. There's not one thing extraordinary about them. Well, one thing, right? They have an extraordinary God that they love and serve. Our extraordinary God uses ordinary people, people like you and me, to accomplish his plan. It's not about us, it's about him. It's not about our accomplishments, it's about our service. It's not about our will, his will. Just think what God could do through you if you would yield your life to him in service and devotion. Beloved, perhaps today is your day to give your daily life of devotion to Christ, to seek first his kingdom, to hunger and thirst for his righteousness, to forget what lies behind and to press forward towards the goal of the upward call of Jesus Christ in your life. Our God seeks and saves the lost. 
Naomi, the empty, bitter, angry, broken. God sought her and loved her. Ruth, the outcast, foreign, penniless widow who grew up worshiping the idol Kamosh. God sought her and loved her. Boaz, the upright Hebrew, the kind landowner in Bethlehem, God sought him and loved him. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Isaiah 53 says of us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We are lost. We are sinners. We have all turned away. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus didn't come to show the way. Jesus came to be the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except to me. Jesus alone is the Redeemer. He alone redeems the lost. He alone purchases us, our lives, with his redemption. He paid the ransom for our sin. Perhaps today is your day to come to your Redeemer and be redeemed, to go from lost to found, to go from empty to full, to go from death to life. Perhaps today is your day to remember that Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost. So the challenge for us, are we? Jesus saved you, but do you realize he's seeking and to save your neighbors? Do you realize that he's seeking your coworkers? Do you realize that Jesus is seeking to save your friends? Are we? Are we leading the people in our lives towards Christ? Are we pointing to him as the way, the truth, and the life? Let's pray together. Father, now in these moments, as we kind of sit here, after hearing your word, we ask your spirit to challenge us, to change us, to convict us, give us insight into ourselves and our own spiritual lives. Where are we challenged? Where are we falling short? What do we need to work on? God, you're our great redeemer. Jesus, you're seeking and saving the lost. And we thank you for that because you sought us to save us and love us. And we are indebted to you. And so we want to live that out in relationship. So convict us and challenge us to what does that mean? And perhaps you're here and you're still the outcast. You're still outside of the family of God. Well, the book of Ruth has a message for you. God loves you, and he wants you, and he chooses you to become part of his family. He's the great redeemer, and he has come to redeem you as well. How do you do that? You just ask him. You just talk with him. Your own wave, from your own heart, with your own words. Admit your sin. Believe in all that Jesus has done on the cross was for you, his resurrection, and confess him as the Lord and Savior in your life. In your own heart, just come to him. Now, in the next few moments here before... And we sing our song. 
Let's just have some quiet prayer and reflection as the instruments play. Think about what God is calling you to do.